0: you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
1: I hate racing and I love racing at the same time. I hate it because what I do to my body is, is quite bad and it's very hard and it's very difficult. But at the same time, when I get in that rhythm and I and I explained it, it's like a Zen state, you know, and when I get in that Zen state, everything ceases to exist for me. But that pure moment there and I can do things that seem unimaginable to me in my daily life.
2: Welcome to the Adventure Podcast and this episode with James Hayden. Before we get into it, I wanted to mention that I've kind of lost my voice, although I'm now recovering. But um, I just spent the weekend at Kendall Mountain Festival where I either hosted or was part of the panel in eight different events in two and a half days, which definitely took a toll on my voice. Either it's that or the um, limits of partying that I pushed a little bit too hard maybe, but um, the less said about that, the better. If you've never been to Kendall Mountain Festival, I'd highly recommend it. So who is James Hayden? Well, James is a long-distance cyclist. He started his life riding fixie bikes around London, falling in love with cycling, and ultimately falling in love with athleticism and training, where he found purpose and community in inner-city London. After that, he raced a series of events across Europe, realizing he had the potential to become a full-time professional athlete, and then eventually going on to take part in long-distance wilderness races in places like Kyrgyzstan on the Silk Road. In this episode, we go through all sorts of incredible adventure stories. But for me, what makes this episode really stand out are some of the more nuanced and philosophical conversations we had around modern-day masculinity, the transition to fatherhood, mental health, autism, personal ethics, and living a life on your own terms. This conversation resonated with me in so many ways. These are topics that I feel very passionate about. And lots of these are subjects that I'm exploring personally on a very regular basis. I found this conversation moving, motivating, and I learned a huge amount about James, but also about myself. That's probably why this episode is much longer than usual, but I don't want to cut it down. I want to leave it as it is, and hopefully you get as much out of this as I did. Before we begin, I'd like to talk to you about Sidetrack magazine, our sister publication. Sidetrack is an incredible quarterly journal that celebrates authentic stories of adventure and exploration. You can find out more at sidetracked.com. I'd also like to take a quick moment to push you in the direction of our charitable partner, the Martin Moran Foundation. They're a wonderful organization working to get young people from disadvantaged backgrounds into the outdoors. You can find information about how you can support them on our Instagram bio at The Adventure Podcast. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, then please do subscribe on iTunes and leave us an honest review. They're a big help and it really does help us bring the podcast to a wider audience. Okay, over to James Hayden. cool man well thanks so much for doing this like i was just saying um i'm genuinely excited for this conversation i think it's interesting because as i think you know like i come from like a climbing mountaineering expedition background and i don't know much about the world of cycling like it's not a thing i know much about at all so you know there's lots of crossover and lots of parallels with expeditions and long distance travel but this is going to be an education for me in lots of ways um but i think as is often the case with these conversations, it's important to give me and the audience some context. So if you could just introduce yourself, tell us who you are and what you do, whatever that means to you.
1: Yeah, my my name is James Hayden. I now, well, I'm from from the UK. I lived in London for 10 years or so, from when I was about 19 to 28 or 29. Um, and now I live in, in the Catalan Pyrenees, about a thousand meters in a small, small village, um, couldn't be further from London, really. I cut my teeth racing bikes and then sort of started racing ultra endurance cycling as I liked going long distances, seeing a lot of things and like challenging myself. And I've spent the past more or less 10 years now as a professional ultra endurance cyclist. And yeah, you can make a living doing that, perhaps in the same way that people are surprised you can make a living doing some types of climbing or something, I guess, you know, and it's been uh, really exciting, uh, really different uh, and really cool.
2: So what's your background and kind of um, origin story, I guess, like why London, why move there at 19?
1: Yeah, um, I was never really much of a, an athlete or into athletics when when I was a kid. Um, you know, they tried to encourage me onto the rowing team at school and, and I just wasn't interested in it, which is a shame looking back because I would have been good. I did some boxing and things like this to, to, to vent some frustrations and try and tire me out. But uh, really, I didn't do anything. And I moved to London when I was 18 or so, 19, um, because I wanted to live in a bigger place and do bigger things. And I liked going partying and meeting people and doing stuff like this. And I was, I was living that life. And, um, I sort of then went to, to university after, after this in, in Bristol went there and then came back to London because uh, my now wife, actually, we'd met in London that first time and, uh, you know, this was sort of 19 and we, we were kind of in a relationship and it was long distance and I ended up coming back to London so that we could be together and, well, you know, 12, 13 years later, we're, we're still together, which is pretty cool, you know? You know, I never thought I'd have a childhood sweetheart and get married, but I, I guess I did in some ways. Um <laughs> That's really cool, and and yeah. So we ended up living in London for for a long time. I went to university there and did two years, and then dropped out. Um, actually, my my paternal father died at that time when I was about twenty-ish, give or take. I don't remember. I I've never really understood why people mark the day that people died. It doesn't make sense to me. I uh, I can't actually remember when it was. I, I, mean, I don't know. I have no qualm with that. I don't I find it weird. But it was around that time, and uh, I, I, I guess I was. Um, Drinking a lot and not a particularly good version of of myself. And I ended up falling out of, or dropping out of university or kicked out really. And one, one thing led to another. And I just sort of, I ended up having to get a job and I got a job and I had to commute across London and I didn't have much money. So I, I started cycling to get across London. And I got involved in like the London uh, fixed gear sort of bicycle scene, which was super cool at that time. Um, very, very hit, you know, and happening as they say and enjoyed that and i lived near a velodrome hern hill velodrome and i kind of went down one evening just to check it out ended up and i had been riding a bit by this point um, and i ended up doing a race and kind of won the race <laughs> and i was like that was sort of one of the couple of moments where i was just like oh wow this is cool and this is for me and this is way better than you know drinking and doing drugs and all of this other stuff so let's let's do this and Enjoy this.
2: That is fascinating for like so many reasons. I mean, I think firstly, if we can, let's talk about the fixed gear scene a little bit. Like That's something I've never discussed on this podcast and know nothing about. Other than the obvious, like the cliches, almost like you hint at, like that's what hipsters do, which is obviously just not true. Yeah,
1: well, it is what hipsters do and and it became very 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 like that and now it's it's kind of not in a way um i'm sort of i don't ride a fix gear bike anymore i did i really enjoyed it uh and it was just a bunch of people yeah riding around on fix gear bikes and this was sort of like 14 years ago or something that i kind of got into it and it'd been around way before me so you know i was kind of a follower along as well and and yeah they were just we just rode like single gear bikes around London there was there was not much else to it and it was just kind of cool and you know you you you, you go down steep hills sometimes and you skid your bike down the hill or you'd be skidding around and you'd be riding with like either no brakes or one brake, and then you know dodging in between cars and just messing around and it was like uh, you know if you live in a city it was a pretty high adrenaline sport to be honest Uh, and I really enjoyed it
2: yeah. And how much of it was it like you found this sense of you know, no wrong answer to this. Like community and purpose, and almost like an unofficial little club.
1: Uh, I guess so. I think you know, I very much started cycling for just the commuting to get across London, and and I wanted to ride a single gear bike because they were cheap, and you know, a bike because the cheap, they were cheap, and the simplicity of it. And yeah, it's sort of you know, there were some other people, but I'm a bit of a, a loner, really. So I wasn't like. A community thing. Um, I think I went to a couple of like fixed gear meetups and it was like, yeah, that's not really for me. I'm, I'm kind of cool by myself, but thanks.
2: <laughs> so, where did the transition come into like racing outside of the city?
1: Yeah, I think that there were a couple like pivotal points in my memory. And one is like a slight step backwards is that um a bit before I'd moved to London or around this sort of time uh my my stepdad was an avid cyclist but like my stepdad was this weird guy that i didn't really know and whatever man i don't want to hear what you have to say leave me alone and you know we didn't have like a tight relationship when we were younger we do we do now so you can listen to this and enjoy it enjoy enjoy that. but uh <laughs> he he had this road bike we had a couple of road bikes and um he lent me one of his road bikes in the summer and basically was like, can you sod off? You're being annoying. Go and go and do something with all of your energy. You might, you might enjoy it. It was more or less how I remember it. It might have been a bit more rude or it might have been a bit more polite. Oh, I can't remember. It was encouragemental. And, and I went out cycling and uh, I just started pushing really hard on the pedals. Uh, and I was about 18 or 19 at this point and started pushing really hard on the pedals around these roads that I'd never been on before near where we lived. And um, we were living up near up near Cambridge, outside of Cambridge at this point. And I just remember this like feeling I got from this exercise and this this athletic effort, and you know the, the euphoria and things from this moment. And it's it's etched hard in my mind even today. And it was like it just clicked immediately. I was like, oh wow, that's fucking cool, you know. I don't need to like, yeah, do do drugs or do something stupid. I can just go and ride a bike and like push really hard on the pedals and, and that feels so good. And that was it. I was pretty hooked from that point. And actually not much longer after that, we did uh, like a hundred mile ride together, me and, me and him, which was super cool. So we kind of had this relationship that was formed through bikes and now we're really good friends. Um, so I guess that's how kind of some ways it started. And then coming back to being in London and riding fixed gear bikes around London, I wasn't really riding road bikes or anything at that point. But uh, as I said, I went out to Hone Hill Velodrome because we were living in Streatham and, and did a race and really enjoyed it and then like won and then started going to the training sessions there and really enjoyed it. And then I started looking for a club to join and joined a club. And then the club happened to have like an under 23 team and I was sort of 21 or 22 at this point, so quite old and way too old to be like getting into a sport and trying to be good unless you're exceptional and I'm not quite exceptional and uh, I just still got stuck in from them and started started training really hard and racing and that was my that was kind of my life
2: yeah it's fascinating and you know obviously I'm building into talking about the big the big races as it were and one in particular how did you transition towards that sort of stuff thinking long distance you always want a harder
1: drug don't you you know (laughs) you try the the baby drug and the baby drug's kind of good and you do a little bit and then you're like, oh yeah, what can I try next? And you do a slightly better drug and then you do, and then you you go to have a big drug and you're like, oh, I'm ready to try that now and you do it and nothing's the same. Nothing's the same and you can't ever go back and uh, that that was it for me. There was this race called the transcontinental race and it it went across Europe, you know? You you went from Belgium or or London in the first year to to Istanbul or, or near Istanbul and Turkey and I just thought, wow that's just not possible how can you do that how can you ride that far in eight days like eight days that's just insane and i'd been racing bikes at this point a lot and um i was okay but not great and uh, i had a big old crash one year and smashed up the right side of my face and a few other things and i sort of said to myself at the beginning of the year if i didn't step up to the next level in that year i'd go and do something else because whatever you can't you know i'm not insane i'm not going to keep banging the same drum and hoping something's going to change so at the end of that year, I went and got a job working in a gym, doing gym sales. To to because I thought, oh, what's the, what's the way that I can earn loads of money in a short period of time, so I can then quit in like April and then train full time to be able to race this transcontinental race. So from I don't know November or something, I worked yeah full time pretty hard in this gym. I was cycling to and from the gym like a couple hours each way or something to or an hour and a half each way across London to keep fit. And because um, who needs to go to a gym, right? Just just get outside. <laughs> I don't I don't lift weights. But uh yeah, saved up loads of money and, and then trained full time for, for four months or something and went and did this transcontinental race because I, I just I was in was is encapsulated, en- enchanted by by this odyssey and I had to I had to try
2: it. I think it's this really interesting concept as well of you know for some people like the like the round the world cyclists or the kind of what's the phrase these people who basically just set out on their bike to go on a journey and they don't know how long it's going to take that's the thing i've spoken to a lot of those people and they're fascinating but it's different for you you weren't saying i'm going to cycle across europe because that sounds fun yours was i'm going to cycle across europe which sounds insane in eight days and i'm going to compete how important was the competition element to you
1: uh, in those days it was it was more or less everything like um i had a fragile ego and i loved to win or try and win and i, I just wanted to be able to do that really yeah
2: so i mean the obvious question is when did you enter and what happened
1: um, um
2: the years are kind of a blur
1: it' long it was like 2000 and. 16. Was, think, I've, got uh, it, I've
2: got it written down in front of me so I can tell you it's 2015 you me, sorry, 2015 was, it was the first one. <laughs>
1: 2015? Yeah. That was close. 2015 was the first one. So I think this was the third edition of the Transcontinental Race, which is now this year is its 10th edition. It's, it's, it's you know the, the premier on the road event now, really. And um, yeah, 2015. Wow. Yeah, I said 10 years. And... I I yeah I just spent like and in, and in several months just preparing for this and all I was thinking about was this everything every moment you know of the day it occupied my mind and um, yeah 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 I went from Belgium I I tell you what happened really so I went from Belgium uh in in Belgium spelt with a g if you didn't know I turned up at the train station trying to trying to pronounce the can I get a ticket to Gerardsbergen, please? And they looked at me like, where, where are you going? No, what's that place? You know, as they do in a foreign country. But Gerardsbergen uh, in Belgium, and it went to Istanbul in, in Turkey, which was incredible. 4,000 kilometers and sort of 35, 40,000 meters of elevation. So it's, yeah, it's pretty unimaginable, really. I was a lot younger then, I, nearly 10 years, so 24 or something at this point, I guess. 23 and I was a lot more arrogant, I had very little humility, and I didn't respect the, uh, the, the the hard nature of it, and I thought, oh, I'm very fit, and I was fit at this time, I can just smash my way through this and that'll be fine, and it was a very young boy attitude to, to take to it. Um, and really, I got uh, about three or four days in, and I was, like leading the event which was kind of crazy but i learned one of the i learned many lessons in this event and it was it was so great for growth but uh i i just destroyed myself i rode my body into the absolute ground and and it gave out on me in more more or less like montenegro and in montenegro i just rolled over onto the side of the road more or less like one evening i sat down on this bench and sort of like fell over and passed out and i had like pain in my neck i had um this thing that cyclists get, no one will have heard of it, called Shermer's neck. This guy called Shermer got it initially. That's why it's called that. And your neck muscles sort of stop working. They 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 tire out from fatigue and you can't lift your head up. And then this sort of turned into pain down my back. And uh and at this point I was a lot younger and perhaps I was quite wise in a way because I did stop at that point rather than pushing it even further. But I I sort of thought, oh, you know, I can't really see where I'm going. And I'd already cycled like two days like this so it took a while for me to quit but i'd cycle two days and not really able to really see where i was going i was holding my head up with uh um, some tape and these other things i'll I find the photo it's hilarious and uh and yeah eventually i, I got some pain in my back and stuff like this and I thought, well, the back is a pretty serious business don't want, don't want long-term damage uh you know and I'll, I'll quit and i'll come back next year hopefully you know with with having learned a, a little bit and um it was a real uh baptism of fire that for me yeah i got my ass kicked which i deserved
2: yeah and i think i i need to kind of pre pre pre-curse this question with saying like i entered an ultra running event and thinking i could finish it six days and i managed one day and then (laughs) and then i bailed and bailed out on the second but i i bailed out because i probably could have gone for another few days but i knew i was going to do long-term damage and the, the medic said that and my question is Did you quit early enough? Did you know in the days running up to it that actually you'd messed yourself up and you should stop? And was your ego getting in the way of you quitting?
1: Oh, I think it's undoubtable that my ego got in the way of quitting because I was, you know, I'd led the race so everyone knew my name. I was that guy. And I was also that guy that everyone that really knew anything about this knew was not going to ever make it to the finish because they just had the wrong attitude. And so I was, you know embarrassed ashamed upset sad um but by by it and you know i did want to finish and things like things like that so yeah 100 percent.
2: but you did go back
1: yeah yeah of course of course that's uh i don't like to leave things unfinished in life and um i was hooked you know the the drug was good and i wanted more of it yeah
2: so what happened second time round?
1: yeah second so the next year so immediately after i quit that that one my mind just went okay that's done right let's think about next year how can we improve what are the lessons to learn what are the mistakes i made what uh what went wrong and what can i do so i then spent the whole next year uh preparing again and the following year went better i i started with a lot more um humility but actually on the first day there was a big thunderstorm heading down towards uh in, in the sort of south central of france near lyon and i have some like pretty strong allergies and this ended up sort of kicking off some sort of allergic asthma thing i, I sort of knew i had this before but i'd not really ever done anything about it because whatever it affected me only a couple of times and You know, unless you've got lots of money, trying to sort these things out is quite difficult, really. Um, So anyway, that happened. I couldn't really breathe very well, but there was a checkpoint not long after with a a hotel, about a 1,000K in. So I stopped at the hotel at the checkpoint, and I thought, I'm just going to rest here. The storm will pass. Hopefully, my breathing is going to improve. And I had this, like, thing in my head that I was like, okay, I might not be able to win this edition now, but I can finish it. And if I can finish this one, I can learn what I need to, to come back a third time and try and win it. And at this point, it was literally just about finishing. I didn't care where I placed I didn't care about anything because there was so much for me to learn by finishing. And, you know, I'm a very much a learn by doing kind of person. And sometimes it's painful, but it's also quite quick. And if you're, if you're humble enough, you, you can learn very well doing that so i knew i had to finish it there was if i didn't finish there was no way i was coming back again so i i rested for like 36 hours or something and you know there's a there's a kind of cool story in here if i want to be arrogant about it is that that i left the checkpoint one in, in like i arrived in fourth place i left in 136th place let's say you know there's a couple hundred races and then my body was okay i was breathing fine and i just got stronger and stronger and uh I'm like, a, you know, I don't know, when I get the bit between my teeth, I'm, I'm unstoppable, really. And that's, that's what makes me quite good at these things. And through the following couple checkpoints, I just picked up place after place after place. And I ended up finishing in, uh, in, in Çanakkale, in, in Turkey, on the Asian side, which is spectacular, in, in fourth place. And so I'd like had this attitude of, oh, I just want to finish. And because of that, I've been able to wipe the slate completely clean of any expectations, any demands, any pressures. It was like there was none. And I just had this complete free, you know, uh, bit of paper to paint on. And and it didn't, nothing mattered at that point because I'd lost everything already. And whatever I could do from that point was better than where I was. And uh, yeah, that, that today is one of my best performances. You know, people say, oh, you won this, you won that. And I'm like, yeah, but... These other ones that you don't think about are the ones that mean a lot more to me. That 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 are a lot more visceral. So
2: yeah, and like you know, you mentioned fragile ego earlier, and we'll, I, hopefully we can talk about that a little bit later because it's something um, very close to my heart as a you know mid thirties man who's been through some stuff too. And I just am really interested in this idea of it was your you letting go of that ego and that need to be the best that actually let you then become better. And I don't know whether or not you enjoyed that first race where you didn't finish, but did you enjoy the process of riding your bike across Europe once you've been the expectations of needing to be the best?
1: Yeah, completely. And, and, and this was one of these pivotal moments for me where I, I realized that, uh, you know, and, and you see it, but I didn't, I didn't, I didn't feel it until I, uh, until I learned it myself, was that uh, you don't want to be the best you want to aim to be the best you can be. And there's such a profound difference in those two things. And for me, after that moment, it was never about being the best anymore. I couldn't, you know, if my best is the best, that's cool. But all I would ever aim for would be my best. And always trying to elicit more out of that. And I think that's such a greater mission as well. Because if you happen to be blessed enough to be the absolute best as well then what else are you striving for because you finish striving because you're not going to be want to be any better but if you strive to be your absolute best to do your absolute best then as long as you do that the outcome doesn't matter and that's such a as an athlete as a person as I, someone trying to survive that's such a huge thing that if you can really grasp it and embody it You'll grow so much from that, and I don't think it's something that you can just be told you have to like you have to get it,
2: yeah, and i I'm not the world's most competitive person, so I can't relate to that side of things in in many ways, but I think there's a there's this element as well of and you you're very welcome to disagree with me. Like, it kind of depends on who shows up too. Like, if you're competing against others rather than yourself, well, what if the best in the world have shown up on mass versus actually maybe they haven't bothered this year? Like, it's the field is different.
1: Yeah, the field's different. I've always got, I think the best argument for that is like, you can only race whoever's there and, and it doesn't really matter in the day. And If they didn't show up, like, whatever. Someone once said to me, like, uh, an expression, coulda, shoulda, woulda. And it's like, well, you know, whatever. So, and I think that's a really great expression. I've, I've, I've sort of lived by a little bit afterwards, and yeah, if the best in the world, or the, 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 whatever don't, don't show up and you happen to win, good for you. you won. It doesn't matter. They didn't show up, and don't let anyone ever try to take that from you, because they weren't there. And in this sport, and I think in it parallels to you know, mountaineering alpinism, climbing a lot, that the outcomes are very uncertain, and you're, you're rolling the dice a lot and it's it's the same here in that the possibilities for things going wrong are are so many even if you are very very good you you could be the best physically and the best in the world but still have stuff go wrong and, and not win and is that your fault no does that take anything away from you no it's just life and it doesn't make you any less of a person
2: yeah totally so what happened the year after
1: yeah the year after the year after is like so actually, yeah, to, to preface it a little bit, that the the race at this point was run, owned, whatever, by a guy called Mike Hall, and it would be wrong not not to mention him, but briefly, because he's he's not a deity like some people like to claim or think, but he was killed in a race in in, in Australia. He was hit by a car by a driver and uh, killed. And this happened in earlier in the year, and so whether the race could go ahead or not was was sort of uncertain. But everyone wanted to go ahead because, well, it was the best way to you know respect him. I think. I mean, some would argue that racing on the road is stupid, and if someone's died, then maybe you shouldn't do it. anymore, but oh, you know, there you go, big debate. But so be it. At this point in my life, I loved up. I loved racing on the road. I loved doing this race, and for me, the best way to to honor his tragic death was was to race it and race it with my full heart and uh, at this point i had some sponsorship and things like this so i was at university at this point or was i i was doing something like i was studying or something actually no i lie i i went back to do a foundation degree so that i could get the grades i needed to go to university it was something like this anyway uh but i had a lot of time basically because i never really worked very hard at school so I more or less, you know, live like a professional athlete with a bit of sponsorship and, and uh, low-cost living. And I, I I trained like I'd never trained before. I prepared like I'd never prepared before. I went to live in... Um, was it Stelvio? Uh, not Stelvio. Not, not not Stelvio. That was the year after I went to Livigno. I went to Sestria in Italy, which is a, like 2,000 meters altitude, to, to live and train for a month before the race to prepare because... You know, altitude helps you boost your blood levels and all of this sort of stuff, and I wanted to get all the help I could naturally, um, which is another interesting conversation. <laughs> naturally. Everything I've ever done is by myself because what's the point in doing it if you're cheating? Isn't You're only cheating yourself. Um, but yeah, I came back, and I just had the performance of my life, really. Everything clicked. I, I was humble. Uh, I was honest. I was, I was fit. I was strong, and I was prepared, and... Pff, I, I rode, yeah, from from, from Belgium to, to the finish in Greece this year. And uh, I had a plan. I was never leading the race for the first three quarters of it. Someone else was leading, and I was in third, fourth, hovering around. And then we got to, um, we are in, we in Czechia, in, in, in Eastern Europe, and it was like the third checkpoint. And uh, I just... It just—I was just like, right, this is the moment. I'm gonna—I'm gonna hit it like 100% now. And I've been riding a knot at 100% to this point because I, I knew that I needed to save something for the last, you know, 800, 900 kilometers, you know, <laughs> to really like hammer it. And I just—that was it. And I just—I just pushed on the pedals like I do, and um, I was—I was unstoppable, really. And you know, I—I—I I, I, I say this in a in a humble way rather than arrogant way. Like I put the work in, and the work paid me back. And I was lucky enough that I didn't have any problems, nothing went wrong. Uh, I didn't really have any injuries or anything. And it was, it was just, you know, after two times of trying and this going wrong, it was, it was just meant to be really.
2: I mean, I get the sense like you could write a book about this particular subject, but you've gone from, you know, sentences like, I had a fragile ego, I was like insecure in the run up to the, to the do not, did not finish to them winning it 2 years later. Like that's yeah. a rapid transformation. And you know, I, I don't want to blow too much smoke, but like I really respect the way you speak about it now with this like there is this humility, but I think sometimes humility can come across as a little bit false because actually there's this sense of well you know you're the shit underneath. But actually what you're saying here is I am humble, but I know that I'm good at this because yeah. I've I've earned it and I've learned it and I just wondered if you could give us some insight into that. Like, how did that happen to you?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. I think you have to hit rock bottom or close to it, you know? You have to get punched in the face enough times that, that, that you're on the floor and then you can you can get back up. And when you get back up, you you, you see things in a different way and you're ready to open your ears and, and listen. And, and I opened my ears and I listened. And I, around this, you know, yeah... You know, my 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 life is the majority of my life is quite privileged, and and I and I know that, and I respect that. But I've also been through some difficult times in my life. Um, I mean, a lot of people have been through a lot more difficult times. You know, perspective is a great tool. But I, I got knocked down enough that that I was like, okay, you know, this hurts. I'm going to have to you know reassess who I am and and do something about this. And. Yeah, a few. Yeah, I don't think there's one thing. Like, I just I didn't wake up one day and go, "Oh, I'm humble now." Like, yes, I'm ready to listen. I, I woke up and, and slowly started listening more, reading more, learning more. I, I I wasn't, you know, when I was younger, I didn't know who I was as a person. I, I tried to fit in with these groups around me and, and be friends and be popular and have friends, and ultimately. I didn't really have many friends and, you know, I know a lot of people and I have a lot of people I'm, you know, friendly with, but I struggled to make friends and struggled to hold relationships and things like this. And, uh, I became, eventually I I started to understand who I was and I became comfortable and with who I was as, as a person and really like digging inside myself into that and opening myself up. And then, and when I'm, opened myself up and I knew who I was, I was ready to like see the world and, and listen to it rather than just shut it off. Perhaps. I mean, it sounds airy-fairy and you know, I, I just listen to people talking like this and I said, what's this going on about? But yeah, it's, it's something like that. It's not, it's not something you can force, it's something that you have to uh, sort of go on a journey of.
2: Totally, yeah, and I think there's no wrong answer to this either, it's deeply personal to you, but when you cross the line and you knew you'd won, what did that mean to you? Was it crossing the line and winning that made you happy or was it the journey you've been on or what was it?
1: Yeah, I, you know, yeah, I, I try, um, when I look back, I want to see it in one way, but the reality is probably, you know, of the moment is is different. I'd like to be, you know, super cool about it right now. But, yeah, winning meant a lot to me. Obviously, I put in a lot of time and effort and, and sacrifice and all these other things, you know and it was really cool just to win on a selfish level that was really sweet but it was also really fulfilling that I'd been on this journey where I'd made mistakes got things wrong learned, learned mastered you know and become you know something closer to a master because we never stop learning and that's something I have to remind myself um, and actually when things go wrong you learn a lot more than when things go right because you're just lucky when things go right so you can't you don't get the good lessons to learn but uh yeah, I'd been on this journey and I'd, I'd marked a milestone in that journey of like, okay, cool. Like, I've, I've learned enough now to win. That That's really sweet. And in a selfish way, like it was really, you know, Mike Hall had died that year and it was cool for me to, to win it that year. You know, I, we weren't friends. I didn't know him. I'm not going to be one of the people who pretends to know some person that's died like a lot of people do. Um, but you know, for the past couple of years, I've been struggling to, to learn his race. And when I first came along, he thought I was like this, you know, jumped up little arrogant idiot, which I was. And, um, then I came back around and, you know, ate some humble pie, learned it and, and, and completed it. And, and that was a really cool little thing to, to have done for myself.
2: Yeah. I mean, it is an amazing story and the way you speak about it is incredible, but then I think... Yeah, you know, we'll move on from transcontinental in a minute cuz there's so much I want to talk to you about, but um you then you went back next year and won it again.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean it, I wanted to prove it wasn't a fluke. I <laughs> I wasn't quite finished with that race yet. Yeah, I wanted to prove it wasn't a fluke and that I that I had what it took to win again. That that year I raced like full out 100%. I I destroyed myself and i didn't need to i finished way ahead of second place but i just wanted to like i remember i rode 850k give or take i rode from somewhere in bosnia pretty high up in 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 was impossible no uh somewhere pretty high up in romania um not far from the danube to to methea and greece in one hit i was like fuck yeah i'm gonna do that so i don't maybe i can't swear but fuck yeah i'm you gonna do swear. that like <laughs> that was my way to sort of honor mike and and and, and whatever happened to him because That was the way that he rode. Like it wasn't the smartest way to ride. I should have like just cruised it in from that point, making sure I didn't have problems. But I was like, I'm, I'm, you know, this is the way you ride, and this he he rode like balls out basically, and it worked for him. And it it, is not really the way I should ride, but I was like, I'm just going to do that, and I and I rode it in one hit, and it was like 48 hours flat out, not really much stopping. Not sleeping, no nothing, and it was like I, I put myself in a, in a locker for that, and it was like that was that was my uh, like tribute or something, I guess, in a selfish way. But yeah, I was not quite done with it yet. I, I didn't really. I wanted to keep racing because I loved racing, and I wanted to do another race the following year. And I didn't know what else to do apart from that. And I, I still felt unfinished there, and I wanted to prove that it wasn't a fluke because you know I still have a small arrogant streak in me, and. um you know came back the next year, I prepared more or less the same again. everything was pretty similar there was a few small changes I made and more or less nothing went wrong again the following year and uh, yeah I won and in in pretty good style and that, that was that was really cool
2: it would be really hard to kind of say that you're not like a proper searcher and a seeker, and it seems that you're not at all scared of looking inside your own head and not being afraid of what you see. And I think you've clearly been through a lot of stuff, but that's probably what's made you who you are. I think that 48 hours is is kind of really interesting. Like, did you do it because, you know, you've said it was to honor him and it's kind of what needed to be done and it's not good style, et cetera. But did you enjoy just doing it? Just saying, go on, let's just see what I can do.
1: (laughs) For me, there's like, I hate racing and I love racing at the same time. I hate it because w- what I do to my body is is quite bad and it's very hard and it's very difficult. But at the same time, when I get in that rhythm and I and I explained it, it's like a Zen state, you know? And when I get in that Zen state, everything ceases to exist for me but that pure moment there and... I can do things that seem unimaginable to me in my daily life. Like I can't imagine these things that I am capable of doing when I find that state. And it's uh I've abused going there a bit too much for sure. And that's an interesting conversation, but um it's uh it's it's like the biggest, the best drug that 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 you could take, I think. You know, I I I I read a lot about buddhism now and and meditation and and more more like eastern than than western because i think it's more interesting but it sounds like not the state that i find sounds not dissimilar to the state of meditation that you can find when you do like really long retreats and things like this by by like masters you know um uh and and actually when i read about the two things i was like a lot of like I was you know, stuff I read, I was like, oh yeah, that's familiar. Oh yeah, that's familiar. Oh yeah, that's familiar. And I was like, wow, cool. Maybe this is a new type of meditation I'm doing over here. Um but yeah, it it's it's really this like special place that's that's unrivaled by by anything else.
2: I think I mean it has to be true. Like ultra running, long distance cycling, like these things they are, you know, push yourself it. I think the parallels to drug use are really interesting, and the fact that you've been quite open about uh, that in the past. I don't know if it's like a certain type of brain, and maybe your brain, you've clearly exposed yourself to those exposed yourself to those kind of things in the past and experienced them. And I, you know, I'll be honest, so have I in the past. And there there are parallels, I think. And looking at it as you know, I push myself further than I should. I've abused that more than I should. Is that just part of who you are, and are you channeling that in a better way now?
1: Oh, I've always said that it'd be better to be doing this than be a heroin addict, and and you know that's 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 the opposite or or a criminal. You know, like I have. I mean, it's all the rage to talk about neurodivergencies now and, and use that word and all that sort of shit, but. I, I I was diagnosed legitimately by a psychiatrist, not, not some person on the internet, you know, as a lot of people may like to do. Or, or I read one page on Wikipedia and I, I ticked the boxes. But yeah, I have ADHD and, and autism. And then I have some other, like, what they call comorbidities, which is kind of a funky little word, of, like, oppositional... They're, like, things that come along for the journey with the other main things that you have. Can you go into that? Well, it's, like... So, like, you don't normally just have, like, one thing. Like, you're not just weird in one way, you know? You're, like, weird and wacky, mainly with this thing, but you have these other things that are, like, related to that one thing. So, like, I have, uh, I guess, oppositional defiance disorder. So, I don't like police and things like this. Like, I really hate power, people with power of authority. Like, and I can't, I find it very hard to relent down to them. And so, you can imagine going to school was a pretty difficult thing for me. (laughs) (laughs) yeah Yeah. narrator pointing at himself yeah yeah. (laughs) don't say that (laughs) (laughs) i mean you can take that out but um yeah so it's not just like one thing but i don't really know how that intertwines exactly with with like what i do for for pushing myself and i've not really worried too much about finding that out i'm just grateful for having found this thing that i love doing that is is you know is a medicine actually and it really is a medicine i don't take any medication for the, for the like weird things that i have because the best medication for me is getting out for like a bit of exercise every day and as long i'm like a dog you know as long as i get out for my exercise i'm i'm chill if i don't get out for my exercise i'm really like not a good person and i'm really annoying and so being able to build a life around having to exercise has been very fortuitous
2: Um, can i ask you i don't know if you've um you know as like i said to you before we started i've I've done my research i've done my reading and i've watched the movies but um have you spoken about the autism stuff online at all
1: no not not once not once because uh i just i don't know it's not that i'm ashamed of speaking about it. i have no issue like if someone approached me like a few people have actually messaged me privately like hey i've seen you talking in your videos like do you have this because i think you do Uh, And it's if you you know, you probably know. If you don't know, you don't know. But I, you know, I, I really struggle with the online space of like it being cool to talk about certain things. I don't want to be that person who's like, this month I'm talking about autism or next month I'm talking about ADHD. And then the month after, oh, yeah, hey, I don't know. It's Blue Monday. Don't kill yourself. Like, I actually live those things on a daily basis. I don't want to have to talk about them with you because. I'm just trying to live my life and and survive my life and, and, you know, life can be difficult for me to live and uh, it's not that I mind putting it out there, but I, oh yeah, my energy is for me, I guess, and uh, I don't need to be the next influencer on mental health. Like, there's someone else out there for that.
2: Yeah, maybe I shouldn't push this too hard and we don't have to talk about it anymore, but I think there is this kind of, there's almost an irony to that of like the authenticity to this conversation that we're having right now and we do you know this podcast reaches a fair few people now and we get a lot of emails and like men don't talk about the shit that they've got going on in their heads like that's a pretty hard and fast rule and
1: yeah it's difficult isn't it like like i i who do you talk to you know you, you know someone else has always got a bigger problem than you or someone else has always got something on you don't want to burden them or you know how do you find a way to talk about that that means something and it's it's difficult you know uh I, I I talk to my wife, mostly, to be honest, about these things, and, and she knows who I am and she understands and we have a really good relationship, and uh, th- that's cool. Um, but even, yeah, so I, you know, I talk to her, and, and that's enough for me. And then I don't need to make a post on Instagram saying, oh, I'm really struggling today, you know, I tried to commit suicide yesterday, my life's really bad, you know, oh, if someone give me some help. Like, that's not going to help me, and I don't really know if that's going to help someone else. I mean, being open, like, oh, hey, I have ADHD and autism. Maybe some other people can connect with that and they can try and use that to help themselves. And I do speak with other people that I know that have these problems and try and help them in, like, things that have helped me. But, yeah, there's only so much energy and I guess I have to use it for myself.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I get that completely. How old did you say you were when you met your wife?
1: Uh, We were, like, 18 or 19. So we've been on a massive journey together from, like, I didn't even know what a bicycle was really when we met uh and yeah uh, yeah massive
2: journey i mean that's incredible and quite i think it's quite rare and again i think you know i don't want to like judge other people's relationships or whatever but um i think it sounds incredible like the fact that you're able to talk to her about this stuff and the fact that she's experienced it all with you like how has that been from a support perspective and a growth perspective and a i guess like positive relationship perspective yeah, I mean,
1: it, like, marriage is real, isn't it? And everyone thinks like marriage is like it looks on Instagram these days. But marriage is hard work, and you have to put the work in constantly and consistently. It's not like you're just going to be... It's, it's like it's like being fit or whatever, however it translates to you. You don't just, like, go training once, and then you're fit for the rest of life. You've got to go training every day. So, you know, in the early days of our, our relationship, we were two very different people. Not, like, not different to each other, although we are chalk and cheese as individuals, actually. But, uh very different to who we are now and you know it wasn't wasn't as easy back then and we spent some time like separated and apart for some periods of 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 those 15 years or something because just couldn't get along with each other or you know this and that and but in the end we ended up back together and 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 i'm still together now and i think it's testament to her really rather than me in some ways like she's super cool and understanding and kind like You know, she's a very kind and loving and and empathetic and nice person. And I'm very, I'm not so, I'm kind, but I'm not kind like she is. And I'm I'm very strong and cold and logical. And I just get on and do stuff. So we're we're chalk and cheese. And I think it's a lot of testament to her. But, you know, even then life isn't like, it's not like we're married and now we live together and, you know, life's easy, like we, I, I, I'd say, I don't know. We went, we went for of counseling after our son was born, about a year into our son being born, a bit later because, like, we just hated each other and there was no real space left for each other. And, you know, it was like, okay, well, we don't want to separate because we love each other and, you know, we, we miss each other. But we got to do something to help ourselves, so we did that. And, you know, I think, like, in these then age, perhaps, you know, people want things to be easy, but it's not. And so you have to put the work in no matter what it is and, and be willing to to do that and then just have empathy and kindness and all these, all these other things. Yeah. And openness and vulnerability
2: as well. Yeah, I mean, preach, you know, <laughs> like lots of clapping from me. But I think, you know, we've skipped a lot of your kind of bike racing stuff and this is the adventure podcast, but... Um, I get to do whatever I want. So, racing is
1: not that adventurous.
2: <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. You just well, ride
1: we'll, from petrol station to petrol station across Europe. I'm yeah. Thinking. Yeah.
2: Well, we'll come back to that stuff because I, I kind of want to stick with the family thing for a second because, you know, we talked about it really briefly before we press record. But, you know, I, I'll, I'll get some vulnerability out. I think you and I have both got kids, they're young. Um, and just what you said there really, really resonated with me. Um, We didn't have couples counseling then, but we have had it before. And I've been to counseling a lot. I've had a lot of therapy. Um, And we are just at the point, you know, my kids are two and nearly one, just at the point now where we're starting to reconnect as a couple after what is nearly three years um, of like this almost transactional relationship, right? Like transactions and logistics of like who's doing what when, you've got to fold the washing, you've got to clean the windows, blah, blah, blah. And like... My wife's back. We're up time to
1: clean the windows,
2: huh? <laughs> I mean, I, I don't know why I chose that example, because I've never cleaned the window. No, <laughs> if
1: you've got kids, you can't do any time to clean the windows.
2: <laughs> no. But um yeah, I'm just interested in like your views on that. Like what you know, you're a professional athlete, you live in the Pyrenees now, we'll talk about that. Um, I'm sure. But how have you found the transition to fatherhood? Brutal
1: is the first like an easiest way to summarize it, you know? Um, yeah yeah brutal you know before we had a a kid I was nervous about having a kid because I didn't know how it would be for me because I didn't really have like this strong drive to have a kid and I didn't you know I didn't have a good relationship with my paternal father um he was probably very similar to me but um he ended up uh yeah he left us or my parents separated because he met you know had an affair with another woman when he was younger and that, that was him and then we never really had much of a relationship because I was a young kid and a little shit, and I didn't really have space to 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 understand him or or to try and you know connect with him. And unfortunately, like, not, I mean, this is a roundabout way to answer your question, but um, I didn't. Uh, yeah, shortly, like, it, it sadly, shortly, like, not long before his death, we started to connect a little bit because I was old enough to understand who he was and that humans are imperfect and that's okay. Um, and we had, like, things in common as well. Uh, you know, he loved, like, well, he built the house that we lived in when we were kids. He loved DIY. He was an architect and all this other stuff, and I was really getting into that kind of stuff. So we didn't so anyway, that's kind of sad. But the, the point from that was I didn't really know how I was going to be as a dad because I didn't have a relationship with my dad. And was I going to... Is that, like, a a, a biological thing that I was going to be similar to him and, like, just not be a good dad and not really be interested in the kid or something? So I was pretty scared about having a kid. But ultimately, my, my wife, Isabel, like, her parents are together still, like, they're super happy. Um, you know, she came from a really nice family. That, that, that You know, two kids, you know, and a dog, and you know, really nice family. And it's super awesome for her. Although sometimes I have to try and reset the bar of reality to her <laughs> from my picture family life. But, but anyway, the point is that she's really kind, loving, you know, like her brother has kids and she was always amazing with them and stuff. So I knew that I could rely on her to to be like better than me if needed and learn from her and be carried by her. So I wasn't I was scared for myself, but I wasn't scared for us as a family because like she would carry the weight on that. Um as I as I, I learned. But uh, yeah, we had our we had our kid, Lennox, and we actually ended up we had him he was born in Girona in in, in Catalonia in Spain, and which was like wild you know is not super adventurous person so we went through a pretty turbulent time At this time like she was made redundant and then we ended up having to stay in spain and all this like crazy stuff so we had a really and she was we were separated for like two months because she was back in the uk when she was like seven months pregnant trying to sort all this shit out so we had a weird period anyway she ended up well Lennox ended up coming one month premature perhaps because of all the stress and shit that had been going on and was born a uh, on the first of January, at about <laughs> at about eleven a.m. in the morning. Luckily, like I'm not a drinker, so uh, which is another interesting point as well. Like, I, yeah, anyway, we'll come to that if you want. But anyway, so so we we ended up in the hospital on the first of January, which is cool because it's easy to remember his birthday. But he had uh, like some problem with his esophagus, so it wasn't like fully growing properly, which meant that that he kind of had then had like some digestive issues and had what they call colic or colic is like this fancy term for basically your baby just you screams all the time there's nothing you can do about it good luck to you you're, you're you know welcome to torture and it's genuine torture this is what the army do to torture people or the CIA or whoever they they play them screaming babies and sleep deprived them and welcome to torture and you know that that's life um, and so we had that to deal with for more or less eight months, nine months of, well, for, for like seven, I mean, you know, I used to, we, we we did a rota, like my wife would be up with him until 2 a.m. And then she'd go to bed at 2 a.m. and I'd get up at 2 a.m. and look after him from 2 a.m. and I remember like, I spent many hours just walking the streets of, of Girona in the parks, like three, four in the morning because he would sleep in the sling because he was upright and it didn't bother his esophagus and all these other things. Uh, but we couldn't sleep him lay him down. So... Yeah, in the end, we ended up being two very sleep-deprived and somewhat tortured individuals by this little blob that that you couldn't or I couldn't really connect with, and um, it was brutal. You know, it was it was really brutal, and uh, it, it, it wore me down completely. You know, and uh, you know, the, 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 I I ended up going for for some counselling myself because I ended up having like suicidal thoughts and all these other things from it because I just that was like ground into ground into a paste, as I think I said to someone. And there was nothing left. And I didn't know how to give more because there was nothing left to give. And, uh, yeah, in the end, I, I guess I didn't kill myself, which is great. and um, And we managed to come out the other side. And now we have this, like, two-year-old kid who's amazing. He's so beautiful. He's so much fun. He's so kind and sweet, little soul. And, you know, I... I, I try really hard now to, like, like I, I still struggle being a, a dad because of who I am. Like, I have I have a, like, low on patience and all these other things. I have to really, like, work hard to, to maintain that. Um, and, I, like, because of my slightly more logical brain, I don't understand why things happen in a certain way. And like, no, let's just, like, shut, shut up and, like, put your shoes on and we'll go to the nursery. Like, let's not have a screen for 10 minutes. But, you know, so I still struggle on a daily basis with, like, dealing with that. But, um yeah, my my wife Isabel is like amazing, basically, and uh, you know shout out to her for 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 carrying us a, a lot and for being there to be patient with me, <laughs> not just not just not just him. So yeah.
0: If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
2: Again, like so much of what you just said really resonates with me. And, you know, I, I don't want to sound disingenuous, but like, I'm really sorry that a lot of that happened to you. I think it's really hard and I think we don't talk about it. And, and there's this... Yeah, we're turning this into a parenting podcast, but um I feel like, and I'm sure I'll get told off by some people for saying this, like it seems that mothers connect instantly chemically with a child. Dads, it's I mean it's the best advice I ever had about being a parent was an older friend who's a mountaineer. One of my oldest friends got-he just said to me, I was saying, I'm I think I might be a sociopath, like I'm not connecting with this kid. And he said, I was genuinely worried that I had a major mental health problem. And he said, her relationship is chemical yours is built on shared experience it requires effort and i was like oh fuck that is everything okay fine i can do that
1: yeah i, I don't know I, I couldn't speak for anyone else and I, I wouldn't i don't know i wouldn't want to because it puts me in a box of then getting hit by people but uh my my, my experience was the same you know our wife, my wife breast breastfed him so she has a very strong connection there and spends a lot of time with him and then my my role is like to to to, to service her you know to to, to massage her feet to make food to you know you know, make sure she can get a rest and you know you look after the kid and really that's what you're there for as a dad in the early days is basically like not to really look after the kid but to look after the person with the, 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 the main caregiver to the child you know and i'll put it in that way in case you have a more like dynamic r- relationship like we have a kind of binary you know man woman kid but you know That that my role was basically to be caregiver, you know, and I'd hold the baby. But no, I wasn't really connected to him. That that comes later, and you just have to wait for it. And I think it does come for everyone. And like I, I, one one bit of solace I I I, you know I I, I took is my 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 wife's brother Matt. He's a builder. He's a really great guy. But uh, you know, before having kids, he was he, he was a builder. You know and uh, and then I saw him with his kids, and he was this amazing dad, like, absolutely amazing dad, and I thought, if that happened to him, like, and and, and we spoke about it a bit before, and it was like, you know, you, you, one day it'll just hit you, and, it, and and I was like, if it happened to him, hopefully it could happen to me.
2: <laughs> yeah, man, I mean, again, I'm not going to go on about it because it'll take ages, but, like, I can, I can remember the exact moment where a switch clicked. Like, I think for some people, it's sort of more gradual, but for me, it was a moment yeah. um, of connection. Yeah, yeah. So how did you know, trying to get us sort of back on track in some ways, how have you found, you know, this transition to fatherhood but maintaining this, like, incredibly adventurous outdoor lifestyle that is, you know, you're saying you're like a dog, you need to get outside. Well, do you still do that?
1: Um, Yeah, I think it's interesting. Like, I, I wouldn't class my life as that adventurous, but I guess it's more adventurous than some, you know. I'm not out, like... I, a lot of my time is like just training, or I was at that point, or just trying to train. So it's a bit more like boring, you know, um, and less adventurous. But some of the things I do do are adventurous at certain points. And to speak to that is like I, I had to be a bit less adventurous every day. Some days would be like more, you know, like I had a job and then I just need to go training, and maybe the training was super boring, but it would be enough to enable me to hopefully go and do like the adventure and racing when I when I needed to. But the honest answer is like I, I didn't uh, cope. Uh, it became impossible for me to train because I didn't have like physically the energy or mentally the energy. Even if I had the time available, like I was just dead to the world mentally and physically. And I I, I couldn't go out and like train hard for four hours because there was nothing left in me to do that. And, you know, I did ride my bike and I did do this stuff and I, I did put in some training, but it wasn't like I could train before, you know? So... In hindsight, I, I should have just walked away from it for a year at least, and been like, "I'm not going to race this year. I'm not going to put any pressure on myself to do anything." But you know, this was my job, and this is how I earn money, and I didn't have like the re. I really, I, I, I could have, I could have done it if I wanted to, and arranged the finances and made it possible. But uh, it would have been difficult, and the, the easier option at the time because I didn't understand how difficult things were going to be. Was to just keep keep doing it and earning the money. Um,
2: yeah. So where did I think to give context to all of this because I know it and some people who haven't, you know, who aren't into bike racing or don't know who you are might not. I'm sure no one
1: knows who I am, which is all, all for the better, really. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, um, where did that transition from, like tarmac to more wild races come in? You know, because yeah.
1: Mean- so I won. I won Transcontinental for a second time in 2019 and i was like cool i'm done with that and actually the thing that i enjoy in life is like learning and mastering and it doesn't really matter what it is so much i get my teeth stuck into certain things but that it's like going on that journey for me is 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 the is the best thing and i wasn't going to keep doing the same thing because I'd, i'd more or less mastered it and i wanted to try something new and and work my way up from the bottom again because that's where the satisfaction and fulfillment is and the obvious step to me at that point, well, actually, I spent, I, spent, I say obvious, I spent about f- four or five months, like, not really knowing what I was going to do the following year. And I was thinking about it and seeing this. And then it just dawned on me one day, like, oh, well, there's this off-road version of what I do in Way That seems a lot harder and it's different. And I need to learn to ride a mountain bike because I'd never ridden a mountain bike really since I was a kid. And I was like, cool, that, that seems like a good, a good challenge to get stuck into. And, and let's see what happens there. And that was in what 2020, I guess. And I I did uh, like the Highland Trail 550, which is in Scotland, which is this mountain bike event, 880 kilometers, because I use metric. Uh, although it's 550 miles, hence the name. If you're if you're British, um, and uh, I did that, and it's it, it it involves some proper mountain biking, not a lot, but it's in Scotland in. In May, and well, the conditions in Scotland in May can be pretty, pretty strong, and uh, and they are. Uh, you know, I always still think that like two degrees and raining and, and pretty sideways wind is perhaps the the most like dangerous conditions you can get. Uh, in some ways, oh, they're pretty good up there for like uh, exposure. But I, I did that, and um, I finished in like sixth place, which. Like, the the place didn't matter. What it mattered was that I finished, and actually a lot of people that year quit because the rivers, and it rained so much, and the rivers were pretty high, and they didn't want to cross them. But anyway, I did, uh, yeah, I did finish, which was super cool, and I learned a lot. And then I was like, okay, well, what's next? Well, hang on, there's this race in Kyrgyzstan. Where the hell is that? Let's go to Kyrgyzstan and race our bikes because that looks amazing on the videos and stuff. And I went to do the, the Silk Road Mountain race in 2020, and... It was uh in in insane yeah
2: so obviously i'm going to ask you to tell me what happened on the silk road but i'm also interested in what you what changed for you that gave you this you know riding on gravel riding off road mountain biking this transition from tarmac what was it that gripped you about it
1: yeah uh one it was harder and so i'd like it was a level up from from the road and that's what i was seeking is the next level then it was like uh, the the sort of the solitude and and the the big wide mountains and things. You're you're there. You're alone. There's nothing around you. So it was more adventurous, um, and it was just different. It was a new challenge. To, there were new skills that I needed to understand and learn, and and I really enjoyed that. And so it was. It, it just ticked those those couple of boxes that I needed, and it was pretty yeah pretty simple. And it was also. Like still riding on a bike, so I didn't have to learn how to, I don't know, climb or do something like this, which, which, which isn't really for me. But uh, So it, it worked really easily, and it just clicked straight away.
2: So for those who don't know, like me, you know what what is the Silk Red Mountain Race? What does it involve?
1: Yeah, uh, it involves um, 1,600, 700, no, 1,700 give or take kilometers and about 40,000 meters of climbing around Kyrgyzstan um the start finish changes and things like this but more or less you head off into the mountains you cycle and carry a bike over a bunch of like four thousand ish meter passes and uh then have to try and get around to the finish as, as quick as possible so you're sort of alone by yourself with the with the shepherds and the the flocks in the in the T-Texan mountains
2: i mean it sounds amazing brutal but amazing
1: yeah yeah it's uh I mean, for any I mean, I'm mean, sure some listeners from here have been to some pretty cool mountains and it's like uh, the scale is spectacular. You know, you look up and you look up and you look up and you keep looking up and then you realize you're riding along a valley at 3,000 meters and you're looking up and it's, wow. So it's, and it's just the remoteness and the vastness and all these other things. And um, it's, a very, it's a very hard place to, to race a bike as well uh, with, the, with the conditions and the exposure and things. So.
2: Yeah, and I ask this with kindness, but like I seen, you know, you you finished fourth one year, and then you finished second. I think it was last year. Yeah. Um, Given everything we've spoken about in the last hour, is second okay? Like you've changed a lot as a person. Oh,
1: second was bloody exceptional. Like, yeah, it's it's interesting. So in twenty, well, there's a year missing from from your from your from your picture there. So in twenty twenty i yeah I came forth um, I was doing pretty well, and perhaps I could have done better. I obviously did my absolute best. I could have done better within the spectrum of results, but uh like two drunk guys tried to try to rob me in the mountains one night, and that was not really great and i I kind of descended back off the mountain to go back to the checkpoint, which wasn 't that far away just for security while i Decided if I wanted to continue or not because I was a bit shook up by it and I spent some time waiting around at the checkpoint And then I woke up one morning and I was like, okay, I feel like okay now I'm gonna I'm gonna start again And uh, make it to the finish And then I had to like cycle back past this place where I'd been attacked and that was pretty anxiety inducing And I was super pleased to get past that but uh, Actually, that was a pretty tough like journey for me to go on of like Reliving those experience and memory and Uh I thought that the best way to get over it was to just to get on with it and <laughs> and do it. Uh, it didn't make it any easier, but I did that, and I and I still uh, for a couple of years afterwards, I had a lot of problems with like cycling at night time or cycling at night time in remote places and, and paranoia and anxiety. But you know, I've dealt with that now more or less. It still exists, but i have like, told myself to shut up because not everyone's going to try and rob me. Um, and in the end, like this was a really cool performance. Like my second time at Transcontinental, I, I waited around the checkpoint for quite a long time, I'm like uh that day, day, day and a half or something like this similar similar sort of time frame actually to the first time and and left like i don't know pretty down the rankings and then rode past a load of people because i was like you know sod this just get me to the finish and uh finished in fourth place so that that was really cool um and uh Again, like sometimes when there's no pressure or nothing left, like you can really perform on another level. And again, it clicked for me again, like to stop chasing, trying to win and just chase, try and be my best without, without any pressure, which is a very like juxtaposition or, or contrary thing to say when you're like a professional athlete who's paid to win races and you're like, oh, hang on, actually, the best way for me, and I re- I, it dawned on me this year, that year, that I perform best when I'm having fun and it's when i'm having fun without pressure that i open that next level like for i i after that second transcontinental i sort of understood that hey when there's not pressure i can do very well but i didn't really understand what those ingredients were that i needed to unlock that next level and i i it took me a few years to really understand like hey w- like what is the key what what do i need to do to get to that next level to open that space and i still because when I can go to that space, I can perform like uh, like like I can't perform any other way, and I, I, I it took me a long time to think about it and even now even though I know more or less what it is that it's basically I need to have fun and I need to be racing without any pressure to to perform beyond just being my my best I still can't unlock that level like automatically it's uh it's not like I just Type of password in and boom next level like you can perform like 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 uh, like no one else in the world no it's it, it, it has to just come naturally from within me but if I can create the ingredients and the circumstances then then it it's, it's more likely to appear but um yeah that year I came forth and I was like that's really cool but that's not like my best really because I was held up and all these other things I got to perform very well but it wasn't my best so it, 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 if, if the listener hasn't already realized like once I take on a a project I, I like to continue with that project until i've like satisfied myself that i'm i'm satisfied with that project and so yeah third year i came back to do um silver mountain race uh, again and this was 2020 uh tw- two? Maybe I've got the years slightly. This was that was, yeah. This was this would be 2022. That I came back again. No, 20, 2021. I came back again. It's all a blur anyway. They, these things turn into a blur in your mind. But 2021, I came back again. This was the year of COVID. And um, what transpired was like a pretty interesting situation, really, from from a mental dynamic of humility. I'd, I'd um, a friend of mine who wasn't actually racing, but he'd been touring in the area. He came. Uh, was volunteering at the event and uh, bumped him to him before the start. And, you know, we weren't super close because COVID and I'm an athlete and I was trying to be pretty sensible, although I'm human and open to mistakes. But like part of the, you know, starting the race was the day before the event. Everyone had to do a COVID test to check uh, that they didn't have COVID. So you weren't sort of taking COVID out into the community and these these sorts of things. And um, anyway, my test came back negative. I was like, cool, great. And then I got a message uh, from the organizer, it was like, "Hey, this person has test has come back positive for covid, uh, and we know you were sort of near them and um, just letting you know now this was like the night before the event started, or I think yeah, the night before the event started, so I was packed ready to go, everything was like mental state boom perfect let's let 's hit this and yeah, this happened, and I was like." Like, the the toll that these events take on your body is, like, uncomprehendable unless you've done it before. You know, it will take me two months to recover afterwards. I will be more or less in bed or on a sofa for one month after one of these events because of where I put my body. And Kyrgyzstan, everything's heightened because of the altitude and the, the conditions like dust and all this other stuff. So you get beat up really bad. There's also not great medical infrastructure in Kyrgyzstan either, and yeah, there is medical infrastructure, but there's not really any helicopters or anything like this. So say you know something goes wrong, well, you know you're going to be there for a while by yourself before the race can send their medical car to sort you out. So let's hope it's not super serious because you're dead. Um, and also, you, like we might remember that I have some sort of lung issue with allergic asthma or some sort of stuff going on there that's led to a few issues in the past. But anyway, like without much hesitation, I was like, "Well, I can't start this event because okay, I don't have COVID, but maybe I will have COVID in two, three days' time, and that's enough time for me to trash my body pretty hard. That my lungs aren't going to be in great condition, and my body, my immune system is going to be pretty, pretty hit already. Then how uh, is it going to be enough to recover if, if this is bad version for me or something goes bad? And like the the risk was just way too high for the return." Um, and uh so yeah then i ended up like sitting in a hotel in kyrgyzstan for a week or something and till there was enough days that i was like still negative obviously in the end i was i never got COVID. whatever that that's the way it goes and i'd i'd make the same decisions again today and then then flew home and, and and these other things and um actually isabel was pregnant at this time i remember so i then even when i got home i was still like oh shit, maybe i could still go COVID. i don't know so because, like, although you were allowed to fly after this time, the, the CDC or something said, well, maybe you could go COVID up to this time. So I ended up living in my van in in, in Girona for for another, like, so many days because I didn't want to, like, come into contact with her and give her COVID. So it was a fucking miserable time, you know? And um, obviously I was going to have to, like, well, I had told my sponsors that, look, I've made this decision. Obviously I'm now not going to be able to race. And it's like, you know, it's not like I'm, um, I don't know, Alex Honnold, or, or or someone like this, whereby you're sponsor for life, basically. Like you can be like, well, we're just gonna go and like do whatever for you, and hey, here's a million bucks, still cool, good for you. Like for me, I'm I'm fighting on the breadline to get sponsorship, and that's a really interesting conversation as well because I'm sure that like this. this the same same shit in other spaces. Like, but I'm fighting on the breadline to get sponsorship, and obviously, I've had to make this decision that prioritizes my health over my ease of ability to get sponsorship for the following year. And obviously then it was very difficult to get sponsorship, uh although I did actually in the end. But um and, and also I was about to become a father as well. And well perhaps people don't want to sponsor me then as well because I'm not going to be able to perform myself. So it was really like I made that like I think that was like that was a decision that that all of the things that I'd learned after the past over the past like six, seven previous years of towards humility allowed me to make because I was having to give up everything potentially to prioritise my my health. And like that was it was the easiest but most difficult decision that there is. Yeah,
2: yeah, I mean, totally. Like I've got a friend who's actually been on this podcast twice called Matt Sharman who turned around four hundred metres below the summit of Everest on a self guided trip, like he wasn't being guided. Um, to look after an ill friend. And he's like, I would make that decision every single day over tagging the summit. And like, it just speaks so much more to who you are as a person. Like, that's so the right reasons to make a decision.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it's it's, it's interesting because we can dive into the fact that obviously I, I then, uh, well, I came back the year after that. And uh, as you sort of said briefly earlier on, I was I was second. And this was the year that this was 2022 so last year this was the year where our son was born on the 1st of January and then I did this race in August and um, my training was like terrible I was not fit like I can be um, I, I, I but I went to this event like I'm just going to do my best hey I've got sponsorship um, I, I'm, I'm still an athlete apparently although I'm not able to, to train or perform like one and I guess I kept that kind of quiet in some ways because I didn't want my sponsors like Oh, this guy's doing, like, 12 hours a week of training. Why is he not doing 20? You know, whatever. But I I think that a lot of my sponsors are also human beings. And I know that they're they're mostly, like, smaller companies. And they're also owned by, like, people who have kids. And they probably understand this shit as well. So, like, shout out to them for being good human beings. Because some of them are really good human beings. Um, But anyway, I came back. And um, my arch nemesis, arch rival, like, you know, Sofansili, like lived in the guy's shadow for the past several years, basically, because he's, he's just a little bit better than me. And uh, if he's first, I'm second, really. And this was the way it transpired this year. So in those two years where I'd like... Um, mm. uh, it, it, well, that year that I had potentially COVID and all of that he went on to win that year so I was like damn I'm sitting in a hotel room with my arch rival like it's a sporting rival. we don't really hate each other you know but you have an immense respect for someone but we're still rivals we're not we're not friends but we're not we don't you know whatever but yeah he went on to win and I was like sitting in a hotel room you know and this, and then my van and this miserable little existence <laughs> watching this guy win I was like that was pretty hard. I turned off social media and all this other stuff for a little bit. And I was like, I'm just gonna take a break from this because I'm as humble as I am, I still have a little bit of an ego, and that hurts, you know. Um, but anyway, I came back the following year. He was there, obviously, wanted to, you know, race it again, having won once. And I think he 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 likes to race me, I like to race him because we're two of the 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 best. Um there are some other people that are very, very good, but you know, when we we race, it's always like pretty good. And we race in slightly different styles. He races full out from the from the start, and I race a bit more reserved from the start, and then I have to pick back up and catch up. But that's just the way I n- know that I can get my body to perform. If I if I race in his style, like straight out from from the gun, I risk like burning out. So, um, but as yeah, so in the last forty eight hours, I realized that he wasn't that far ahead, and I picked up a load of places, and I was now in like second place. And uh, yeah, that switch flicked and I I just chased him and I chased him and I chased him. And um, in the end, uh, you know, I I ended up about, I ended up close enough, like about 30 kilometers from the finish, I ended up close enough that I could see his tail light up ahead of me climbing, climbing the mountain in the dark. And I gave everything, like I gave everything. I turned myself inside out and then inside out again. Um, because there was basically one final climb and then after that climb it was downhill and then flat into the finish and I knew if I didn't catch him on that climb I damn well struggled to catch him after. but if I caught him on the climb I could break him mentally enough that like I could have find another level again to like at least ride with him to the finish we'd actually finished we'd had this amazing race several years ago where we raced neck and neck with each other. Like 1,000K, uh, 1, 1,000, 1, 1,400K, and then we ended up neck and neck, like banging each other up this final like, Italian Alpine pass after racing four days straight out. And here we are going, full on, like you couldn't, like imagine doing your hill sprints or whatever. We were going full on like this at each other up this climb. Like this doesn't happen in the kind of racing that we do because normally people win by like an hour or two hours or stuff. But you know, there's not a lot between us when we're both on our level. So here we were in the middle of Kyrgyzstan doing the same thing again. And man, I wanted to catch him. Like I talk about my best, but like I've lived in this guy's shadow and I would have loved to put one over on him. But anyway, what transpired was like not far from the top of the climb I still hadn't quite caught him, but was getting nearer and nearer and basically I just I died like I I, I more or less fell off my bike and, and just came to a complete dead stop and there was, there was nothing left like I've you see this sometimes like if you watch the Tour de France or these other races and I'm sure it happens in running events too that someone but more the Tour de France because you have ride like you ride in a team and you'll have some riders who are the Domestique and they are not racing to win themselves, but they are riding for their leader. So they'll be just destroying themselves up the climb to put their leader in position. Um so this is more or less what happened to me. I just I just there was just nothing left. The lights went out completely and I more or less passed out and fell over at the side of the road. And uh yeah, I, I, I laid there for a bit and like I was done. Really, I knew I could ride to the finish, but I was never gonna catch him. So I was I was done and um I laid there for a while to like try and regroup. And I think I then had to sort of walk to the top of the climb because I just didn't have the energy to pedal and uh then roll rolled into the finish and ended up finishing like let's say about an hour behind him. And so you, you asked me like was that good? And I'm like, damn, that was one of the best performances of my life. Like, yeah, I walked away with my head held so high after the year I'd had to like go against him and perform at that level like if I if he hadn't been there and I'd won maybe it would've almost meant less because I might not have had to perform at that level or I wouldn't have known how good my level was but like even on a bad day for me I was able to be up there and perform and I gave more than 100% of myself which actually like I I've had to pay a price for that performance like following on from it because I it, I I uh, how would you say I paid? I I I I took on a debt I couldn't repay, or something like this. You know, it was it was too much. I asked too much of my body; it gave it, and I've had to now really struggle to pay that back. But yeah, that was that was a defining and incredible performance. And I don't care; I was second. It doesn't mean anything to me. Like, yeah,
2: that's so cool, though. I mean, like. <laughs>
1: It is. I mean it's so meaning it's so pointless and so meaningless, but yeah, it's
2: cool. Well, it's not. You know, we find purpose and meaning in so many things. I think no, I think it's incredible. But was it worth it? No.
1: No, it wasn't. And uh as I said, like after that, it took me a lot I was very sick afterwards because I just demanded too much of my body. Um, it took me a long, long, long time to recover and I'm probably I'm probably still recovering now in a way, like a year and a bit on from that. My body is not quite the same, whether it's from that, whether it's like I I probably had COVID at some point and then I had like some other chest infections and stuff like this. And then when our our kid was born, when he went to nursery, uh, I got sick a bunch off that. And so... Something something sort of happened and I was sick a lot really after that event and you know, three or four chest infections and not not too many period and then like I struggled with energy levels and things like this and I'm not really someone who struggles with energy and I struggle with energy and um, I had to step off like training a lot and give my body a lot of space to to recover and i've 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 tried very hard to do that you know I'm someone who just loves to be outside and loves to like pursue ridiculous days uh athletically and and I just haven't been haven't been able to do that um, but slowly it's it's coming back to me so was it worth the cost probably not do I know that that was like the thing that 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 cost me no also not but uh yeah for sure I paid a price on on that
2: yeah so What's your lifestyle like now? I think, like, just to give it some context, you know, you you live in a really remote part of the Pyrenees in a little cottage, from what I can see on social media, and you're chopping wood and living that life. Like, that's a I'm conscious dream choice, of I'm right?
1: Living the dream. Yeah, it's, it's my, my, I, I joke, it's my dream, other people's nightmare. You know. Yeah, it's interesting. Like, so, so this that was 2020. To when I achieved that second place, obviously, twenty twenty three, I didn't struggle to get sponsorship because I'd achieved second place. It was like it was pretty easy. It was like right, let's sign on the line. Money's money's all right. It's not great, but we can live for another year. You know, we live in the Pyrenees. Life's pretty cheap. You know, let's be clear. I'm not. I'm not exactly driving around in a Lamborghini like some some idiots on social media. You see, you know, I have a banged out twenty year old Subaru, and uh, yeah, that that's life. Um, but that's cool. So. I wouldn't want a Lamborghini if you gave it to me. Uh, I'd sell it. I'd sell it and then live for another 20 years on the money to, uh, to train as a full time athlete. But yeah, so that was 2020. 2023. When I actually, just before I went to race in 2022, we, we bought this um, really old house up in the Pyrenees. And the reason we bought it was like it ticked some boxes. One, we had enough money to buy it. So, it was, like, we could actually buy it. Two, they had a nursery and a school within cycling distance so i can take the kid to school on the bike that was like non-negotiable i'm not getting in a car to take him to school or doing that sort of thing um and then there was a few shops and then uh it was like there was a footpath that went out the back door of the house up into the mountains and that was like my dream i wanted to walk out the house onto a footpath and just be in the mountains i don't want to have to walk through the village or the town or anything i was like i want to be on that footpath i want to walk out my door and just go um and then um I managed to persuade Isabel, my, my wife, to move here. I'm, I'm not really sure how. I think I just, I, I wore her down long enough and long enough. And I was like, well, this is it. Let's do it. And then eventually one day she was like, okay, let's do it. <laughs> so just to shut me up maybe. You know, she thought, well, wow. she's actually said to me since that she came to live here because she thought it would make me happy. <laughs> but I mean, I, you know, she does like living here, though a lot of good things. But We can't know. gloss
2: over that statement. I mean, that is amazing. <laughs>
1: Yeah, my, my wife. My wife's spectacular, and I love her it. to the end of the earth. And and you know, yeah, she's amazing. Uh, but uh, you know, there's not a, we, her family live in the UK, and she misses them. And you know, it's it's pretty hard existence in some ways as well, for sure. But we also have a very good quality of life here. Like the air is clear. You know, our son can run around outside. We have you know started making genuine friends who like to pursue the same things that we like to pursue. Not um, you know. I don't know. I won't yeah, I won't say something because I'm sure I'll upset someone. But you know, not not just like people you know or whatever. Um pub friends. Let's call them pub friends. There you go. So that's it's a really cool bit, it just takes time obviously. So, we, we came up here actually when, when Lennox was eight months old or something, which was pretty. <laughs> looking back on it now, she showed me a photo of him when we moved here on moving day, and we're, we're, we're dragging our stuff up to the house on a tractor and a trailer, because that's how you get stuff up to the house here, because you can't get here by car. You have to walk up to the house or use a tractor. And there's this little, like, you know, drooling eight-year-old, eight, eight-month-old kid, and it's like, wow, we did that. That was pretty wild and pretty brave. So, maybe I do live a slightly adventurous life in that just, I just get on and do things and whatever, and make the best of it. And uh, then obviously this year, 2023, yeah, I got contracts, came back, raced again. And this year was like a disaster in, in its own right completely. And um, I had in my head at the start of the year that it was like this year was like, not make or break, but it was like, it was, it was going to be a transitional, pivotal year in that I'd, I'd race again because the contracts were there. I wanted to race again, you know, in case my sponsors are listening. I'm not just saying that just because you're listening. Like, I actually love to race my bike and I... I still love to race my bike and it's actually a a beautifully cruel thing for me. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I had two races again this year, the Highland Trail 550, which is my other project in Scotland, which was a disaster. I had a chest infection just before the race. I still went because, well, it seemed like the easiest thing to do for sponsorship obligations rather than trying to explain to people I can't go and race because I've had a chest infection at this point. So I'll just turn up and see what happens. And I knew within 12 hours it wasn't happening. And actually... I would end up doing like damage to my body if I tried to just finish it um, versus going away, licking my wounds and coming back hopefully in shape to race Silk Road Mountain Race again and and strive to get that first place but again, just see if my best was possible for that first place. So, you know, I'd like to have first but it's like do my best and maybe my best is good enough for that. And also, I think more or less at the moment like Silk Road um, well, I guess in 20, 2022, I hadn't potentially achieved my best because I hadn't really been able to train to do that race. I just sort of turned up off the training I got and, and come second. So I wanted to see what I could do at it if i trained. Actually, this year, uh, life has been a lot better. I was able to train. I still hadn't been able to train so hard over winter as I'd like to, so I didn't have the foundation that that I needed in the bank, but I, I, I had like some good riding in me. I trained a bit differently this year, which kind of comes to your lifestyle question a bit, like more off the bike. Like where I live is at a 1000 meters, and we're in a valley, and one side is the Parque natural de L'Alprenio, and the other side is the Parc Nacional de Agostosi Estan And these are like two places that like are spectacular. But there's above 2000 meters, you can really only really move on foot. Um, Unless you want to carry your bike around, which I do sometimes to go mountain biking. But I spend a lot of my time like cycling up to 2000 or give or take meters or cycling along the valley, then up to 2000, and then going hiking. I don't call it trail running because you're not really running, are you? You're like hiking uphill and then maybe dancing downhill. So it needs a new name because I was always intimidated by trail running because I thought, if I'm not running up the hill, am I trail running? Is that trail running? What is this? And so I know like you don't have to run to go trail running, you're hiking and then dancing. Um, so yeah, I started hiking and dancing in the mountains above 2000 meters and scrambling around a bit and stuff and, uh, opening some new doors into some other ways to pursue like mountain movement. And and this is what I like movement for me. And that was really cool. And actually I spent a lot of time like hiking with my son in in the rucksack and he's like 15, 16 kilos at this point. And like, I was doing like three, four hour hikes with him up like 1500 meters or so. So for anyone like that does stuff like that. I was strong, <laughs> like, I was getting really strong. And um, I went to Kyrgyzstan and I thought that I was, I wasn't as fast on the bike as I'd been in the past and I perhaps wasn't as like, fit fit from a fast perspective, but I was strong, I was resilient, and I had depth of strength that would like envy any like mountaineer on a mountain expedition where you don't need to necessarily be fast, you just need to be able to go and go and go and go. And I went to Kyrgyzstan and Christ, I was in good shape. Like, I wasn't fast. I, I had a weird first day, perhaps with the altitude and these other things. Sadly, it just happens and that's life, but whatever. But on the second day, something clicked. My, my body came back to me and I just started riding. And I I, I remember riding from 1,000 meters to 4,000 meters in, in one afternoon and it just was nothing. Like, it was just, I wasn't even, I, I wasn't even, obviously I wasn't out of breath because I wasn't pushing super hard, but I didn't feel anything in my body I was just riding and it was spectacular and uh things started clicking and I was riding really well and um this this sort of like lifestyle of like just being active every day in the mountains was was paying off because I was riding like I hadn't ever really ridden before and anyway what happened was uh There was this section that was super dusty. I got loads of dust in my lungs. This sort of like ended up giving me, uh, I don't know what you'd call it, but like a chest infection. And I was coughing up a bloody mucus. And to the point that like, I was having to like stop at the side of the road, like lean over and then like collapse coughing because I couldn't breathe because I was coughing so much. But I was like, okay, I can manage for this. This is all right. It's not probably doing serious long-term damage, although it's not great, but I'm not too far from the finish and I'm riding really well, so let's just get this bloody thing done. So then at least I'm finished. Even if I'm like fifth place or whatever, I'm just going to get done. Um, and at this point, I was about fifth or something. I still thought I could potentially get third if I, if I rode well and I was riding well. So. But then I went over the second to last pass, uh, 150 kilometers to the finish in 1,800 kilometers race. So I was bloody close. And from here, I'd already ridden a lot of this. I'd ridden this course into the finish before, like two years ago, so I knew it. Um, So it was more of a tick in the boxes of like, let's get this done. I I got up to about 3,800 meters, give or take. You know, It doesn't really matter. And it started wheezing pretty heavily, like you do when you're having an asthma attack. And I, I couldn't really breathe. So, I had to, I had, I was already going as slow as you could go, more or less. Trying to, trying to push like 16 kilo bike at 4,000 meters is not easy for the best of times, let alone when you've already done like seven days of constant riding and you've not got much energy left. And you've got like perhaps like 20% of your lungs left as well. But uh, it didn't, the wheezing didn't ease up and it got worse. And eventually, I like, so I had two options here. One, I, I definitely couldn't panic because if I panicked, I'd maybe have an attack. I could descend the way I'd come up, but that would take time. It wouldn't be like straight just going down. And I could only kind of get down to like 2,500 meters quickly, which wasn't that low. Or if I managed to do another 200 meters, 50 meters over the top, I could descend quicker because the surface was better to 1,000 meters and nearer to the capital city to medical care in case I needed it. So I was like, trying to work that out in my head and I was like okay I think the best thing is to try and get over this thing hopefully this isn't gonna get worse and I can keep breathing even if I go slowly and um, then see about whatever's next so I got to the top and um, I was like you know I don't know I'm not religious so I didn't pray to god but like I, I sort of like thank you you know wow like uh, like, the lessons I'd learned in the past paid off. Like, I was cool, calm, collected, and I just went slowly, breathe, all that sort of stuff. Got to the top, I didn't mess around, just, like, got straight descending so I could start breathing again. Descended down, and I, I, I knew at that point, like, my race was over there and then. I wasn't going to bother continuing for, for two reasons. One, like, I'd, I'd ridden those kilometers from there to the finish before. I knew I could ride them again. Like, I didn't have anything to prove in myself of, like, can I get to the finish again? I knew I could. I probably couldn't race to the finish anymore, even if I tried to ride it because it, like, I wasn't breathing well. But the problem was that there was one more mountain pass to come that was, like, slightly higher elevation than that pass. And I was like, oh man, that's just a gamble, isn't it? And, like, I'm a dad, I've got a kid, and, like, this is just a silly little bike race. Like, that's just stupid, you know? So I descended down, there was a a shop, I just sat down outside the shop and I was like, cool, let's get a drink and chill out because I'm done, you know? And and my race ended there. Not great for sponsorship, (laughs) but but like, uh, I'd achieved my best, I'd done the best I could and, and I'd done an incredible performance again. I'd ridden like my heart out, I'd ridden so well. And I knew I could get to the finish, but I also knew that I couldn't race to the finish and I knew that potentially by trying to ride to the finish, I might risk my life. I don't know. Maybe I wouldn't be risking my life, but maybe I would. And it just didn't make any sense in in playing such high odds for a, for a, for a little bike race. So, I mean, you asked me about my lifestyle of living and I've told you about this year. But th- the reason I kind of talk about that is a little bit, it's like this year was like a transitional year for me in that I've not, sadly been able to complete this chapter in the way that I would have liked. Like I would have wanted to win Silk Road. That could have led me to have sponsorship to go off and do some other events and and keep pursuing this. But sadly, like my body's changed a bit as I've got a bit older and I don't have the energy that I used to at the moment to pursue these things. And I need to give my body a bit of space, a bit of time to hopefully regain that. And I've always said that I want to be an athlete when I'm 60, not just like abuse my body for 10 years and then retire and become like unhealthy and not fit like that's not worth it for me so right now i feel like i need to give my body some space to not race to pursue some other things use my energy as i have it and need it and not be out like training super hard every day or trying to train super hard every day because then when you can't train because life or energy then maybe you can get downbeat and these things so yeah i'm I'm at a pivotal point and you know i now live in the mountains and the mountains are amazing and last winter i started ski touring like i skied as a kid a lot started ski touring getting back into that off piste did a bit of dabbling and ski mountaineering um This summer, I learned to paraglide. Uh, I I know you had someone on the show before who taught themselves to paraglide. Like, just don't do that. That's fucking crazy, man. No, don't. Got to say that. Like, I went to a school, learned to paraglide, taught, you know, got taught to paraglide. And um, I got really interested in, like, moving on my feet as well now rather than just on a bike. And a bike's sort of becoming like a transport thing for me to get to the mountains. Like, I don't drive to the mountains because, like, I don't know. I just like to be moving myself. Like, I need to get myself an e-bike so I can get to them a little bit quicker. But it's just cooler for me if I leave the front door and then hit three thousand meters and then hit the front door again. Like, there's so much more meaningful than if I drive somewhere up to like two thousand five hundred meters and then hike for a bit and then drive back. It's like it means less to me. So yeah. So now I'm 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 transitioning a bit into um into 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 different forms of movement and and experimenting with them and i think i'm about to start my next my next journey and i love mastering things i'm kind of interested to see where it goes for me yeah
2: yeah i disagree if you do but it sounds like you know we've been talking for 90 minutes like it feels like your motivations have really changed but in a really positive way um and maybe like the core of what you're doing now is actually like going on these journeys to find efficient ways to travel through the wilderness from from, yeah
1: i i tend not to use the word motivation because i don't often have motivation um i i just try and follow what interests me and if you follow what interests you then then you'll do it because it interests you and it'll get you out whereas if you try and do something that you don't want to do you 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 can have like all the motivation in the world but you're still not going to do it but if you build a natural interest you have a commitment and a commitment overrides a motivation and like I don't get out every day. Like yesterday was snowing super hard and it was windy, and I was like, "Cool, I'm just not going to go outside today and exercise because that's all right. I rest and then I like once the storms passed and the, the weather settled, there's going to be some snow and I'm going to ski super hard. So yeah, I'm not motivated every day, and and I do have like because of the way my brain's wired that that's the way I am. I'm, I'm like all or nothing, and but so I just try and follow interests. But now I have these new interests and they're super cool. And like, I, you know, already I'm, I'm thinking about like, okay, I'm gonna get my bike this winter and I'm gonna, I like, cause I skied in the mountains around my house last winter. I, I'd use a bike to like uplift me into the mountains for an hour and a half cycling, and then swap onto my skis and ski up from there. And so like this winter I'm like, okay, I'm gonna go on a week long trip with my bike, with my skis, with my tent. And I'm just gonna see where I go and go and find some new places to ski. Um, maybe there'll be good snow here, good snow there, maybe it's avalanche safe here, avalanche safe there, whatever. But like, yeah, use that to go on some adventures to to explore a bit by by multimodal um, athleticisms rather than more binary, like, oh, I'm a cyclist, I'm just going cycling, that's all I'm doing. No. Yeah. And actually like, I'm I'm pretty crap at all these other things like skiing, skiing, ski mountaineering, paragliding, trail running. I'm pretty terrible at them, and that's kind of cool as well. Like it's okay to be terrible at stuff you're interested in. Like in there's a modern world of social media, you see these people that are just amazing, and you think you have to be amazing, but no. As long as you're having fun and enjoying yourself, it doesn't matter. Like if you're terrible, cool. It's going to be easier to have fun. Like so that's great. But um, I'm kind of. I, I like I've seen uh, there was there was a climber Roland uh, I'm gonna forget his second name now but Roland a uh, mount mountain guide you know who cycled uh, and did all of the four thousand meter summits in in the Alps two two summers ago by bike basically connecting them up and I'm like that's a really cool project man and I'm I, I'm starting to see more clim- and cause, so it's interesting for me to come on this podcast and talk to that sort of audience because I'm starting to see more climbers runners ski mountaineers start to use a bike to do these things and I'm like hey guys I'm over here I'm using a bike like it's really damn cool like if you can like work out how to cycle it which isn't particularly difficult but you need to get a bike fit and a few other things which are kind of important you might actually find that your adventures become a lot more fulfilling and a lot more interesting for you if you can experience in that way and if I can perhaps like try and inspire some of these people to stop Getting in their car and driving to the mountain and doing this stuff and 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 trying to experience it using a bike or even on foot. I don't I don't care. Do it on foot, but you can travel around the valley pretty easily on a bike, or you can have a really amazing journey. And I'm not like I'm going to go into the environmental issues of it because that's like it speaks for itself. But just from a personal, selfish level of like fulfillment, it's amazing.
2: Yeah, I mean, we could talk about the environment stuff, but I'm very conscious of you know your time. But I think. Just everyone as, knows about the environment we don't need to yeah exactly i'm
1: not I, i'm not i'm not a preacher and i'm not going to lecture anyone and i fly a couple times a year and i have done that so i'm not going to get on a pedestal and say that yeah you yeah, need yeah. To do these things for the environment but like it, it's there everyone knows about it especially so, i think but,
2: yeah. yeah the audience for this podcast are definitely aware of it because we talk about <laughs> it all the time right but it's so interesting what you just said i mean this is an extreme example but it's deliberately extreme my shot a feature film this summer with Alex Arnold and Tommy Caldwell. and
1: Oh, wow. Part, I didn't know you were part of that. Yeah. they're they, the Alaska biking,
2: yeah. Yeah, so they cycled from Tommy's house to The Devil's Thumb and then we went up there and we, you know, and at first, I'll be honest, and I said this to Tommy, I was like, this feels super contrived, like TV have just come up with this thing for you to do. And he was like, no, dude, this is my idea. Yeah. And I was like, oh, that changes everything. And like... People have said, yeah, but they're pro athletes and they're millionaires and all this stuff. And like, yeah, I get that. Of course I get all that. They wanted to prove a point. And actually, Alex, who was kind of resistant to the whole thing at the start, he just was like, my friend's asked me to go and I want to support my friends. He said, it's completely changed my mountaineering experience because I approached the mountain slowly.
1: Yeah, it's beautiful. Like, you're not. Yeah, I mean, I, I saw Alex Honnold actually did like some big day on, on a mountain before a few years ago with a bike as well. Like he cycled out or did a trivert, Like, And that's cool. Like, it, I, Again, if you do it by foot, that's cool as well. But okay, you know, I think the thing is like people are like, oh, I want to go to the Alps and do Mont Blanc. And that's what I want to do. So I'm going to have to get in my car or fly and drive there because I'm time limited. Or I'm going to fly to the Catacomb and do this and that because that's what I want to do. And if you 're going to start doing things more like this, either by using foot or bike or even kayak or whatever to transport you to to the place, and for sure there's no qualm in like driving somewhere and then getting on your bike and then cycling around and that, like you can do that totally. but you have to be more humble in your objectives and perhaps a bit smaller in your objectives and I think that's not cool for Instagram or like cool for like telling your friends and people are a bit more like hesitant to do that, but I think people that Well, you should just do it for yourself is the first thing. But um, yeah, if you're willing to do that, you can do some really amazing, amazing things.
2: But I think that's also like busy lives with your parents whatever, but also the carbon thing. Like, I feel like we are seeing this amazing transition with these like stolen adventures. Like in December, I'm going to go and run the Sandlings Walk, which is, I live in the flattest county in England. And we're going to run 95K over two days. We're going to pre-stash our gear because... The ethics are mine. They don't belong to anybody else here. And it's a door-to-door mission. And it's like, I can take the two days off. I've got the childcare. My friend's going to do it with me. We're not super fit. But like, I could probably have flown to the Alps and gone and done two really cool routes. And I don't get to do that anymore. But I will get so much out of doing that journey close to home. So much.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I I I I have this mindset as well and I haven't always had this mindset and so I, I, I'm i not on a pedestal or anything like that and I, no judgment to anyone else but it's, it's like this is how I want to live right now and I come to live in this beautiful place and part of the thing for living here is that I don't need to leave here. I don't go on holiday anywhere, I don't go anywhere, I don't need to go anywhere. Like I'm here and I said to, so I've been lucky enough to make a couple of really good friends here um, who are into the same sort of like stuff as me, like crazy stuff and I said to one of my friends, Montse, and a few other people were like, I want to know these mountains like the back of my hand. Like, I want to know every single rock in in 100 kilometers from my house. And I would rather know every single rock in 100 kilometers from my house than ever go to the Alps and and do these things in the Alps, which like, okay, the Alps are super cool. And like, there's so much amazing stuff there. And yeah, I look on Instagram, I see these like guides fucking climbing and then paragliding off. And I'm like, wow, that looks really cool. I wish I could do that. Definitely a huge tinge of jealousy. But actually, if you can be in your world and not someone else's world, you can find so much like joy in it. And for me, I just, yeah, I want to know the entirety of like the locality of my house before really I start really pushing other places and I, I, I'm, I'm going to get bitten by my own words because I'm definitely going to go to the Alps like, <laughs> and see a friend this winter and go skiing there but you know it's it's like more like that but it's like I'm not always going to be off like doing stuff in other places I, 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 I really want to like in-depth explore the mountains here and you know this summer actually when I was training for Seal Road to this bike event a friend of mine came out and we left from, well, I lie, we didn't live quite from my house because I've left from my house so many times and whatever. And I didn't want to do that. Like my friend had come out and I didn't want to take him on some like slightly crap 10 kilometers just for my weird little moral principles that I have. So uh, my uh, my wife drove us 15 minutes up the mountain so that we could jump into the national park from there a lot easier because well, he, he doesn't have to buy by my stupid rules. I I need to flex sometimes actually. But uh and then we did a, a, a week of uh, like trail running um, between like two and 3,000 and a bit meters. Well, trail running again, here I go. Hiking and <laughs> dancing, uh, between two and 3,000 meters to, to train for Silk Road, because I was like, well, that's great altitude training for me. Also, hiking uphill is really great for cycling. It's, it's pretty similar muscles. And uh, I decided to explore some of the Agustardas I I, I National Park and this was spectacular, yeah.
2: I think we'll let you off your 15 minutes. <laughs> um cool well no, i have i have weird
1: moral principles yeah
2: no i think they're great it's better than that. that's a,
1: a very autistic like uh it's a very autistic black and white thing so
2: yeah. <laughs> well um yeah i'll try and draw this to a close i think you said earlier um you know your wife moved out there because she thought it might make you happy has it made you happy
1: It's it's an interesting thing it's an interesting thing and i i do think about this like people often say that that you know rich people can still be unhappy and still have problems and it it is true you can and someone that lives in a beautiful place with a beautiful family and you know these things can still have problems yeah there's no doubt about that but man I I wake up every day and I look out and I see like 3,000 meter peaks around my house and I'm like I go out running on the trails behind my house and I cycle my kid to school and stuff and it's like my life is spectacular Yeah, and I've worked hard to get here. We've made sacrifices to come here and uh, I'm so grateful for my life.
2: Amazing. Well, I ask the same two questions at the end of every episode, so I'll ask them of you now. The first is what scares you?
1: Losing myself.
2: Can you build on that?
1: Ending up or having to be someone that I don't want to be in order to to try to, to get through life. Like, I try and live a life that's true to myself and true to who I want to be and what I want to do so that when I'm old and I die, I'm like, yeah, I, I, I was myself and losing myself scares me.
2: And what brings you hope? My wife. <laughs> I think given the context of this conversation, that's a fair answer. <laughs> yeah. Ace, well, um, I, I don't want to sound disingenuous, but this has been one of the most interesting and thought-provoking conversations I've ever had on this podcast. Like, I've enjoyed this. <laughs> genuinely, like, so much I mean, it had
1: some cool people and cool podcasts, so I'm I'm flattered, thank you.
2: It's really resonated with me. Um, thank you so much.
1: No, that's cool. I look forward to watching the film on, on Alaska, because, man, that that, that inspired me. Like, I, I don't like... I don't like climbing because it's too slow for me. I also don't like it because I don't have to do it and <laughs> I don't want to have to learn how to do it because I can't find someone to teach you. But it's, too, it's a bit too slow for me. It's a bit too slow. I like to be... It's that movement and really like yeah, being moving that keeps me going. But uh I'm I'm really inspired by that to 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 try and do more trips like that and get more into like bigger mountain movement and stuff. So I'm I'm looking forward to watching it.
2: Well if you are, I and think And
1: I'm i also I also have to say that I'm really happy that so many other people are gonna watch that and be inspired by that as well and be like, oh, let's start using bikes because bikes are cool. So yeah.
2: Well, and what I love about that story is it's not it's not like a ego trip story. It's not a death danger story. It's a buddy movie about two guys who love going on adventures together, and I think that's hugely motivating. And on the speed thing, you know, I've had the privilege of watching a lot of climbers at elite levels do their thing. Alex and Tommy, the traverse that they did, the previous record was three and a half days. They did it in 18 hours moving together.
1: Yeah, I mean... Yeah, I mean, I, I know. Uh, yeah, I'm not going to become the next Alex Honnold, am I? I'm going to be, you know, <laughs> trying to like push my way up some little pitch, and half an hour later, like, oh, where, do I, where do I put this? Uh, where do I put this bit of protection? Uh, uh, maybe should go. Uh. So yeah, stick to. I think I think Killian Killian has got it really good. He's stuck to what he's good at and verged a little bit on the sides, and that that's worked really well. And I think you know if you invest in too many different things, you you, you can become not good at anything. So although saying that. I don't know. If anyone ever wants to take me climbing and teach me to climb, like I'll, I'll carry your gear around and I'll, I'll carry you up the mountain with you if you teach me to climb. Be careful.
2: So, yeah. I'm sure you'll get some offers. <laughs> Ace, well, we'll leave it there. Thank Thanks, you man. so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you want to get in touch, then you can email me at matt at terraincognita.studio. And finally, as always, please do leave us an honest review on iTunes. They're a big help and it really does help us bring the podcast to a wider audience.